Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to the audio edition of the Weekly Roundup, where we examine some of the major headlines and developments that pertain to the asset and wealth management industry across Singapore, Hong Kong, and mainland China. This episode, we are looking at the week of April 19 through 23, so let's dive in. Starting down in Singapore... The Association of Independent Asset Managers Singapore has rebranded itself on its 10th anniversary, becoming the Association of Independent Wealth Managers Singapore, as reported by Fund Selector Asia. Founded in 2011, the Association of Independent Wealth Managers Singapore has over 80 members across Singapore's external asset managers, family offices, and service providers and exists to drive the development of the independent wealth management industry in Singapore. The rebranding was made to reflect the evolution of the association and to incorporate industry developments which have seen the wealth management landscape evolve beyond asset and fund management. Additionally, the numbers of independent wealth managers in Singapore are reportedly increasing, and the AIWMS saw a timely opportunity to increase awareness around the role of independent wealth managers to meet investors' changing needs. Next up, ultra-high net worth individuals in Singapore are set to gain a new insurance product, as reported by CityWire Asia. Sunlife, a Canadian insurance company, has launched a whole-of-life insurance plan for high net worth individuals and ultra-high net worth individuals in the Lion City, named Future S. The product is designed as a wealth preservation and estate planning solution and is designed to provide a smooth transition of personal and business assets in their lifetime and beyond. Benefits of the product include guaranteed death benefits, flexible payment terms, high guaranteed cash values, and cash value growth. Moving up to Hong Kong, as Citigroup, a U.S. financial conglomerate, prepares to withdraw from 13 retail markets across the globe to focus on a select group of wealth management centers, it is preparing to hire up to 1,700 staff in Hong Kong, as covered in previous episodes, and up to 500 of these hires will be in wealth management, as reported by the South China Morning Post. This number would include up to 300 relationship managers over the next five years as City aims to triple its client base and double its AUM in Hong Kong by 2025. The boost in Hong Kong relationship managers forms a part of City's Win in Wealth campaign, which will see City aim to add 150 billion US dollars in AUM across Asia Pacific, with 120 billion US dollars of this coming from high net worth individuals. If successful, this would see City managing 450 billion US dollars across Asia Pacific by 2025. To support this drive, City will increase headcount by circa 2,300 across the region, with 1,100 of these being relationship managers and private bankers. City's CEO of Hong Kong and Macau, Angel Ng, reiterated that Hong Kong was a, quote, key strategic market for City, end quote, and that Hong Kong was one of the largest contributors to City's global revenues. City's CEO for APAC, Peter Babbage, further stated that City would continue to grow integrated wealth, payments, and consumer lending businesses in Hong Kong and Singapore to provide, quote, 
comprehensive solutions for customers with global needs and aspirations, end quote. Again reiterating that Asia was crucial to Citi's global ambitions. Citi's move to increase headcount and investment in Hong Kong comes as HSBC, Credit Suisse, Goldman Sachs, and others have also stated their intentions to increase headcount and investment in APAC in general and Hong Kong and China specifically, especially with regards to the Wealth Management Connect program. In a similar vein, Standard Chartered plans to increase its retail and wealth management headcount in Hong Kong by 400 by the end of 2021, as it seeks to grow its share of affluent consumers in the fragrant harbour. In addition to the increased headcount, Standard Chartered is also boosting its digital capabilities, pouring 1 billion Hong Kong dollars already into this initiative, and it will invest a further 26 million US dollars over three years to develop its 70 branches in the special administrative region. This investment is in addition to the 125 million US dollars it has already announced for digital services. This 400 headcount increase will be complemented by a wider hiring spree of 1,000 staff across the Greater Bay Area over the next three years. Similar to other entities, Standard Chartered is seeking aggressive growth in the region, aiming for 200% income growth by 2025. As covered in an earlier episode, Standard Chartered is building a dedicated center in Guangzhou for 1,600 staff that it expects to be finished by 2023. At this time, the Greater Bay Area is expected to contain 2,300 employees. Similar to Citigroup, and as covered in a previous episode, Standard Chartered will be merging its private banking and wealth management units into a single entity, enabling it to offer wealth management services to investors across a wider investable asset range. Moving on, HSBC, a British bank with historical ties to Hong Kong and mainland China, is launching a new service for clients with assets under management of between 1 to 5 million US dollars called Jade Private Markets Investment Service, as reported by Asian Private Banker. The new service will assist high net worth individuals in grabbing opportunities previously restricted to the institutional and private banking space, enabling clients to access investments in the alternative space, structured notes, and primary market issuances, among others. Maggie Ng, head of wealth and personal banking at HSBC Hong Kong, stated that the new service was a, quote, commitment to offer differentiated wealth solutions to our customers, end quote. HSBC expects Hong Kong's high net worth individual population to increase by 12% annually, and the launch of the Jade service will help this growing population, quote, navigate an increasingly challenging investment landscape, end quote, by offering a diverse range of financial products and services. Next up, Coindesk reports that Huobi Asset Management, a subsidiary of Hong Kong-listed Huobi Tech, has launched four crypto funds which will invest in Bitcoin, Ethereum, crypto firms, and crypto miners. Though not listed crypto mining companies, opening up new channels for asset managers to invest in these assets. The Bitcoin and Ethereum funds are passive trackers. The crypto mining fund is a private equity fund, which was launched earlier this month. And the final fund is an actively traded crypto fund. The launch of these funds follows Huobi gaining approval from the SFC, to manage and distribute digital assets in March 2021, making Huobi the second such firm to gain such approval. 
Huobi has raised nearly 50 million US dollars across the four funds and able to double this amount in the, quote, near future, end quote, according to Lily Zhang, CFO of Huobi Tech. Additionally, the CEO of Huobi Tech, Jillian Wu, noted that inquiries from high net worth individuals and wealth managers at private banks around investing in cryptocurrencies were increasing, as covered in a previous episode, and that banks were wanting to see funds with a track record before onboarding the fund as a product it can sell to its clients. Other asset managers are also applying to launch similar products, with FanEck and Fidelity applying to SFC to launch Bitcoin ETFs, though industry experts warn that traditional asset managers may struggle with the unique operational challenges and talent shortages the crypto asset space deals with. Despite these challenges, it will be interesting to see how the crypto asset fund space develops with traditional asset managers increasingly interested in it and with niche players launching funds. Moving up to China. As Citigroup withdraws from the retail and consumer banking market in China and other markets, it is looking to establish a securities entity in the Middle Kingdom, as reported by Bloomberg. The application is expected to be filed within the next two months, and operations are expected to begin in 12 to 18 months' time. Initially, the operation would have a headcount of around 50, with plans to grow this to 100. If successful, City would join numerous other foreign financial institutions who are making moves into China's security space, with several having applied to take 100% control or a majority stake in their existing securities joint ventures. Moving on, Zben Advisors, a Shanghai-based consultancy and former employer of mine, have released their 2021 China rankings, which shows US asset managers taking 6 of the top 10 places and 9 of the 25 total positions in the rankings. Zben's rankings assess foreign asset managers on their presence in China across three criteria, inbound, outbound, and onshore, with data collected as of 31 December. To avoid basing the rankings off a single snapshot in time, Zben also considers developments across the whole year and incorporates survey responses, when provided, from the companies as well. The inbound ranking encompasses the greater China fund management business and the use of China's various inbound investment channels. Physical asset investment in fund products were emphasized, with inbound mandates and institutional business also considered. The outbound ranking examines the programs permitting domestic capital to be invested overseas. A firm's positioning for when restrictions are relaxed is considered, along with a firm's sub-advisory business. The onshore business aspect looks at several factors, including whether the firm has fund management company involvement or a woofy. The 2021 rankings saw fund management company involvement weighted slightly higher than that of woofies, unlike in previous years where they were weighted equally. This change was made due to regulatory changes enabling 100% foreign ownership of fund management companies. Also, this year's rankings incorporated onshore commercial pensions and bank wealth management product involvement. With regards to the rankings, JP Morgan took the overall top spot, defending its position from the previous year, with UBS and Invesco taking the next two spots. Within the three ranking segments, Invesco ranked first for onshore, with JP Morgan and UBS taking the next two slots. JP Morgan ranked first in the outbound section, with BlackRock and Schroders taking the next two places, 
and UBS ranked first in the inbound category, with BlackRock and JP Morgan taking the next two positions. Zibin noted that the firms adopting a balanced approach to their China engagement performed best, with all of the top 10 firms falling into this category. The rankings follow JP Morgan being ranked first in Broadridge's latest China Power rankings, as covered in a previous episode. Broadridge's rankings saw BlackRock, Invesco, UBS, and Schroders in the remaining top five spots, indicating that there is consistency across rankings even though different criteria are used. Despite JP Morgan retaining its number one spot in Zben's rankings, the top 25 places saw substantial reordering, with two new entrants to the top 25 rankings and all bar four places after sixth changing. Whilst foreign financial institutions are taking divergent paths in their approach to China, they are finding it challenging to differentiate themselves from their peers, with Ignite's Asia reporting that they are potentially dealing with the issues of standing out in a competitive market, with one China head of a foreign asset manager stating that how to differentiate themselves and leverage their global expertise and experience is, quote, one of the biggest challenges, end quote. Differentiation needs to be not just from foreign competitors, but local players as well. This need for differentiation is further complicated by high turnover of investment management staff and high expectations of young professionals, something that impacts local asset managers along with foreign firms. Compounding this, the investment preferences of Chinese investors, summed up by the general manager of one of China's largest brokering firms as, quote, low risk and high return, end quote, whereby they can capture upside whilst enjoying downside protection, differs to foreign investors as they are generally more focused on short-termism investing and prone to fund churning. With 2021 seeing substantial developments across aspects of China's asset and wealth management space, it will be interesting to see how foreign asset managers respond to these challenges and how the 2022 rankings are affected. Despite the rankings potentially being seen as positive signs of foreign engagement and involvement in China's asset and wealth management industry, a recent Asia Securities Industry and Financial Markets Conference saw Sandra Liu, a partner at Lynx Law, a law firm, note that many foreign asset and wealth managers were hesitant to enter the market due to high and rising political tensions. Ms. Liu noted that, quote, the political relationship is a big concern to the global asset managers. End quote, and stated several of her clients were expressing concerns regarding whether Chinese authorities would put up additional roadblocks or obstacles for foreign firms entering the market. Next up, increasing numbers of Chinese fund management companies are looking to establish proprietary sales businesses, enabling them to bypass fund distributors and engage with investors directly, as reported by Ignites Asia. CSOP and Bossera two top 10 fund management companies by AUM, reportedly applied to establish direct sales subsidiaries at the end of 2020, with Bossera receiving feedback from CSRC earlier in April. If successful, they would join six other fund management companies who have established direct sales subsidiaries, largely to avoid paying fees to fund distributors, which have increased as fund management companies battle to land blockbuster fund launches. There was a substantial increase in distribution fees over 2020, as distributors charged higher commissions and fund management companies competed for massive fund IPOs. Borsera, for instance, had trading commissions increase nearly 33% from 2018 to 2020, against average profits rising 
by just under 19%. Establishing proprietary sales subsidiaries would enable fund management companies to bypass these fees and potentially force fund distributors to lower their commissions in the face of competition. Though some industry commentators believe the move to sales subsidiaries is risky, as the industry segment is fairly nascent and the move may jeopardize existing distribution partnerships. Across the six fund management companies with existing sales subsidiaries, their subsidiaries account for an average of 10% of industry fund sales, against 20-30% to for online channels and banks remaining the majority. Over 2020, fund management companies saw success, at least with a bull market, by harnessing the distribution power of live streaming events with some partnering with influencers to drive fund sales. Other industry participants believe that as increasing numbers of firms establish investment advisory operations, with five licenses granted and at least 80 other firms in the application process at time of recording, there is an opportunity for fund management companies to establish their own sales channels and take steps to separate themselves from traditional fund distributors. Moving on. DBS a Singapore bank, has announced that it will acquire a 13% stake in Shenzhen Rural Commercial Bank for 814 million US dollars, as reported by Asian Private Banker. The announcement follows DBS's CEO outlining their China strategy, as covered in a previous episode, in which consumer finance and the opportunities within the Greater Bay Area featured prominently. The purchase of the stake will make DBS the largest shareholder of Shenzhen Rural Commercial Bank and was acquired at a 1% premium to book value. At time of acquisition, SRCB boasted 217 branches and over 3,600 employees, servicing in excess of 5 million retail and 170,000 corporate customers. For the year ending 2020, SRCB reported 519 billion renminbi in assets, 404 billion renminbi in deposits, and that it generated 4.8 billion renminbi in net profits. The CEO of DBS, Mr. Piyush Gupta, stated that the acquisition was viewed as a, quote, highly complementary strategic partnership that will allow us to double down on the Greater Bay Area and leverage Shenzhen Rural Commercial Bank's local network and know-how to deepen DBS's Greater Bay Area strategy, end quote. DBS is also establishing a consumer finance woofy and holds a 15% stake in China Post Consumer Finance, the consumer lending entity of the Postal Savings Bank of China, and it will be interesting to see if there will be synergies between the investments and, if so, how they are leveraged. It will also be interesting to see how the joint venture plays out, as these have a checkered history in China. Next up, the governor of the People's Bank of China, Yi Gang, has stated that China will make it easier for foreign investors to access China's green finance market, as reported by Asia Financial. The comments were made at the Boao Forum, in conjunction with other comments made regarding financial measures to help China transition to a zero-carbon economy by 2060. Some of the other measures mentioned include green bonds and green loans as qualified collateral for People's Bank of China loan facilities, increasing green bond holdings in foreign exchange reserves, and controlling investments in high-pollution assets, among others. As covered in an earlier episode, 
Goldman Sachs estimates that China will require 16 trillion US dollars in investment to meet its climate goals, and China International Capital Corporation has upped this to an estimated 21.33 trillion US dollars of debt financing over the next 40 years to reach its net zero carbon emissions target. Moving on. Comments from the general manager of the Shanghai Exchange, Tsai Jianchun, have hinted at a Shanghai-Switzerland Stock Connect link, as reported by Fine News Asia. The comments follow the 2019 Memorandum of Understanding between Switzerland and Shanghai exchanges, where they agreed to study the feasibility of listing securities on each other's bourses. Additionally, there have been ministerial-level discussions between Switzerland and China on deepening bilateral ties in finance. Mr Tsai stated he believed the first batch of the trial could be completed in 2021. If successful, the program would join the Shanghai Hong Kong Stock Connect and Shanghai London Stock Connect programs currently operating. Whilst the Shanghai Hong Kong Stock Connect program saw aggregate cross-border flows reach 272 billion renminbi in aggregate quota use as of April 23, 2021, the Shanghai London Connect has only seen 6 billion US dollars in global depository receipts. The financial instrument traded on the Connect program sold since its launch in 2019. Whether a Swiss Connect program would have more success remains to be seen. Also in Connect program developments, Deakins, a law firm, reports that as stated in the 2021-22 budget, the Hong Kong government is planning to expand the Bond Connect program to include Southbound, that is, Chinese investors buying bonds in Hong Kong, trading, with the Hong Kong Monetary Authority and People's Bank of China establishing a working group to see the scheme expansion completed by the end of 2021. Next up, Willis Towers Watson, a global advisor firm, released two research papers outlining how institutional investors can allocate capital to China whilst managing ESG risks. Willis Towers Watson highlighted that the application of a total portfolio approach and active management of their assets in China allowed investors to achieve long-term diversification and returns without a negative impact on their overall sustainability profile. This is largely due to the fact that adding Chinese assets in isolation incurs a penalty when looked at with a sustainability perspective. At an aggregate level, Chinese assets provide a substantial positive contribution to portfolio quality, driven by increased investment diversity and higher expected returns. Given the current state of China's sustainable investment development, noted by Willis Towers Watson as being in its infancy and not yet comparable with global best practices, with only a small number of listed companies disclosing ESG-related information, a blanket allocation towards Chinese assets is not recommended. Hence, an active management approach should be at the forefront of institutional implementation solutions in China. Despite China's aforementioned lack of sustainable investment development, Willis Towers Watson observes that China's sustainable investment has gathered significant momentum over the last few years. Willis Towers Watson further notes that asset owners do not necessarily need an onshore presence in China in order to undertake adequate governance and other investment checks. They do note that asset owners need well-resourced partners on the ground to help them in their investment allocation decisions 
and in selecting managers. No doubt, Willis Towers Watson sees themselves as a key player in this regard. Finally, Willis Towers Watson states that in recent years, China has emerged as a world leader in the funding and development of technology to fight climate change, and that it will be a key source of investment for net zero emissions and other climate change mitigation technologies in the coming years. Separately, Ignites Asia, citing data from Morningstar, notes that total assets in climate-aware funds domiciled across Asia-Pacific reached 18.6 billion US dollars at the end of 2020, with China accounting for over 87% of these assets and 38 of the 75 climate-aware funds domiciled in the region being based in China. This concentration highlights the point Willis Towers Watson makes in their research regarding China's role as a key source for sustainable investment in the coming years. Over in China fund developments, Shanghai Securities News reports that, despite posting strong returns since launch, mutual funds which are focused on China's Starboard, a Nasdaq-style bourse launched in July 2019, are struggling to attract new fund flows. The first batch of Starboard-themed funds attracted more than 120 billion RMB in assets at launch, but a combination of marketing challenges and regulatory restrictions on fundraising limits have seen asset accumulation fall short of expectations, culminating with the second batch of Starboard-themed funds only raising 12 billion RMB in assets last year. Additionally, of four ETFs undertaking IPO fundraising in February this year, three fell short of their fundraising target of 5 billion RMB. At time of recording, the AUM of China's Starboard-centric mutual funds stood at circa 70 billion RMB across more than 50 funds, with the four Starboard ETFs having a total market capitalization of circa 40 billion RMB. These fund flow issues stand against nine of the funds posting returns in excess of 100%, and another 11 posting returns in excess of 50% as of 13 April 2021. With equities funds currently out of favor with Chinese investors, as covered in a previous episode, starboard funds may need to wait for a change in market conditions and sentiment before they can expect inflows to arrive. This market sentiment may spill over into the wider mutual fund space with fund management companies facing the prospect of launching nearly 400 mutual funds in a period of dampened investor interest. The Securities Times, citing data from data provider Wind, note that of the 935 funds CSRC has approved since October 2020, 383 are yet to be launched in the onshore market, putting pressure on the asset managers to begin the IPO process before the six-month regulatory deadline to launch the funds expires. As covered in earlier episodes, the blockbusting IPOs many funds experienced in 2020 appear to be falling by the wayside, so asset managers will need to launch their products in spite of the potentially poor fundraising they will attract. Further, Sina Finance, citing a report from Citic Securities, a Chinese brokerage firm, states that 54% of mutual funds in China suffered net outflows totaling 24.2 billion RMB over the first quarter of 2021. 
the remaining 46% of mutual funds had net inflows of 62.2 billion renminbi, which more than offset these losses. Though fundraising of mixed and equity funds between April 12 through 16 brought in a combined 33.9 billion renminbi, with mixed funds accounting for circa 95% of this fundraising. These are the lowest fundraising numbers, both in an absolute and average sense, since the beginning of 2021. China Fund News, citing a report published by Ant Group Research Institute, Jiaotong University, and the wealth management arm of Alipay, notes that over 70% of Chinese investors hold funds and wealth management products for less than one year and 49% of investors will only hold on to losses in funds for three months or less, with another 37% willing to hold on to losses for between three months to one year. Additionally, 9% of respondents would hold losses for one to three years, and only 5% would hold on to losses for more than three years. The report observed that investors making consistent, systematic investments into funds had longer holding periods, and were less likely to make knee-jerk decisions based on short-term losses. Regular investing habits appeared to be the best strategy, with more than 60% of investors engaging in regular investing reporting returns over 5% in 2020, compared with only 40% of investors with no regular investing habits. The report also highlighted the somewhat unsurprising habit of Chinese investors chasing the market, with over one-third of investors saying they would change their investment allocations if losses reached 20% or higher, and circa half of investors stating they would switch investments if other strategies exceeded 20% returns to try to catch that particular wave. A professor and academic deputy dean at the Shanghai Advanced Institute of Finances, Yan Hong, stated that the report findings reflected the opportunistic approach of Chinese investors and demonstrated that value-based investing habits have yet to be widely adopted. Whilst the report findings may be unsurprising to foreign and domestic asset and wealth managers, they may serve to give further context around the investor mindset that they are targeting, and as value-based investment habits are promoted and adopted across the wider investment community, the effects of this will be interesting to track. Also in China Fund News, Ignites Asia reports that ongoing regulatory efforts are having a market impact on Yuabao, the flagship money market fund of Ant Financial and China's largest money market fund, with the fund suffering its steepest decline in quarterly AUM over first quarter 2021. Total assets in the fund fell by nearly 20%, or 150 billion US dollars, over 1Q21. This follows the People's Bank of China's ordering of Ant Financial to reduce the size of Yuabao, as covered in an early episode, in order to control liquidity risks and as part of wider actions taken by Chinese regulators against Ant Financial. Yuabao's AUM has fallen steadily since March 2018, when it reached 1.69 trillion renminbi in assets under management as regulators began cracking down on money market funds sold via channels such as e-wallets due to liquidity concerns of same-day redemptions across such products. Despite this latest assault on it, Tianhong Asset Management, the asset manager of Yuabao, which is majority owned by Ant Financial, stated that the changes were, quote, 
normal, end quote, and would not have any impact on the operation of the fund. Whether this eventuates will be interesting to witness. Finally, the first asset managers to participate in China's infrastructure REITs products are submitting their applications, with the Shanghai Stock Exchange and Shenzhen Stock Exchange accepting their first four applications. Borsera Asset Management and AVIC Fund Management submitted their applications to the Shenzhen Bourse, and Jiashang Securities Asset Management and G Fund Management applied to the Shanghai Exchange. These applications follow on from the release of official regulations for infrastructure real estate investment trusts issued by CSRC in August 2020, which opened the product up to retail investors, though retail participation is capped at 24% of a REIT. How the pilot scheme develops will be watched closely by many in the industry. So, that is it for the week of April 19 through 23. From our perspective, certainly the massive hiring being undertaken by Citigroup and Standard Chartered in Hong Kong, as they seek to really grow and develop their wealth management operations in that territory, are perhaps one of the most substantial developments this week. Along with the amount that Standard Chartered is investing in its digital services and across its branches. In terms of the rankings from Zeben Advisors, Having JP Morgan at the top of those rankings and defending its place from a year ago certainly makes sense given the developments and initiatives JP Morgan is undertaking in the Chinese market. Though it was interesting to note the statements from Sandra Liu regarding the political risks and apprehension that some of her foreign asset and wealth management clients are expressing to her about entering China's asset and wealth management space. Also in China, whether the trend for fund management companies establishing their proprietary sales businesses takes off across the whole industry will be quite interesting to see. Certainly with the developments in the online sales channels from the upcoming investment advisory operations licenses that will be entering the market hopefully soon. It will be interesting to see whether there are any legs to the Shanghai-Switzerland Connect following the relatively lackluster performance of the London-Shanghai Connect that has been operating for the last couple of years. And also excellent that there's a report confirming the short-termism of Chinese retail investors in that market. But let us know your thoughts in the comments below. If you enjoyed this episode, do give us a like, share, and subscribe for further content. If you didn't enjoy this episode, thank you very much for sticking around, and let us know in the comments which developments and headlines you think we should have covered. From Three Lions Asset Wealth Management Advisory, thank you for joining. We hope you tune in next time.